So last night, Molly spoke very clearly and very beautifully about refuge, about what it means to take refuge. And, um, and she spoke quite generally about taking refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And this evening, I'd like to speak more specifically about the Buddha and taking refuge in the Buddha and, and what, that, what that means and different ways of, perhaps different ways of understanding that. And um, I think I'd like to, um, like to begin just by kind of emphasizing the point that it's, it's, it's not, not so much um, not so much misunderstood in the West, but <coughs> certainly in Asia, there's an understanding of taking refuge that um, taking refuge can come to mean almost like worshiping and taking the taking the Buddha as a god and and worshiping the god and and sometimes this is the interpretation so when people see others bowing down and prostrating and chanting and sitting in front of the statue and lighting incense and so on it's um, it's it's interpreted as as worshiping the, uh, the 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 person the Buddha as a person um, sometimes I think it can be interpreted as worshiping a piece of wood but <laughs> but it's but taking refuge isn't about worshiping as, as Molly explained last night it's about finding inspiration and having a role model perhaps and um, and having having a certain degree of trust and and faith in 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 the Buddha and what he taught and his teaching, at least enough to begin exploring. So it's a it's a you know, taking refuge is is going for for safety for protection. And so um, I'd like to speak a little bit more about that specifically in reference to the Buddha this evening. But I'd like to um, like to start by speaking about, about the Buddha, by telling a bit of the, the story of the Buddha and some stories about the Buddha. And of course, um, the, the stories have been handed down. Oh, Buddha was born in the sometime in the fifth century. The uh, date isn't exactly known, but the, the general agreement for most, most Buddhist countries and most um, Buddhist um, schools or lineages uh, agree that he died 2,556 years ago. And the agreement generally is that he lived 80 years. So you can do the math and figure out when he was, when he was born, approximately. <laughs> and and in, in, in reading the Buddha's story, the, the story of his life, it, it can become understood why people would worship, would worship him as a god. The, the, many of the stories involve quite miraculous occurrences and, um, and, and special powers that the Buddha had. And I think um, for, for me, the, there, there was, a real, there was a, a real specialness about the Buddha. And and some of these some of these stories of his powers and the 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 magical wondrous miraculous things that happened with with the Buddha or that the Buddha is said to have have done some of them um, I tend to think well there's got to be another explanation <laughs> some of them I see as quite possible and 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 to me whether they happened or not isn't isn't so important. But nevertheless, these, these stories do inspire me. And, um, and, and because of this, um, I never tire of hearing or telling <laughs> the story of the Buddha. But, but what, really, um, what, really, what really draws me to his life story, aside from all these, these miraculous things, is that there are so many stories that bring out the humanness of the Buddha, and and I think the, the the humanness of the Buddha 
is what really allows for a connection with the person and with the teachings and and with taking refuge. It's much easier to take refuge uh, in in someone who who's human than in some idealized, um, you know, highly elevated, way beyond reach um, person, if you could call that a person. So the Buddha's the Buddha's story begins with with his with his birth. He was born <coughs> in the fifth century, sometime in the fifth century, and he was born into the Sakya clan, which was um, like a, a tribe. It was a, a clan, a, a clan who lived in what's now the the border area of India and Nepal. And his father is usually referred to as the king. But I'd say he was probably more like, more like a big city mayor, <laughs> or or possibly the governor of a very small, of a very small province or state. Um, the 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 Sakyas were more or less a, a semi-autonomous region that was overruled by a neighboring king. And in fact, just about at the end of the Buddha's life, the neighboring king came in and took over completely. So he was born into this, into this family, into this clan, and he was given the name, as, as Molly mentioned last night, he was given the name Gautama Siddhartha. And, and the, the birth story is one of these miraculous stories. It's a very interesting story, as, as many of you know. The, the conception happened when his mother had a dream in which a white elephant entered her womb. So it's considered a, a, miraculous, a miraculous conception. And then um, about 10 months later, when she was about to give birth, she set out, as was the custom and still is the custom in India, when so so when a, when when a couple get married, the woman moves to the husband's family home. But when she's about to give birth, she goes back to her family home, and, and the birth happens at her own family home. So his mother set out to go to her home, and she didn't quite make it. She ended up in a forest in Lumbini, which is in, currently in Nepal, just over the border from India. And the, the Buddha was born in this, in this forest. And the story is that, um, and again, it's, it's portrayed as a miraculous thing. But, um, apparently, the Buddha was born, his mother leaned up against the tree, and the Buddha was born out of her side. So it's, it's considered a miraculous birth. It could be considered a cesarean section. <laughs> you know? Perhaps it was a difficult labor and the birth wasn't going right and the midwives, and the midwives um, facilitated the birth because there certainly would have been midwives. So the Buddha was born in, in this, in this forest, in a, in a park, it's depicted as a park, and then went back to, was taken back, and, and it's, uh, it's, uh, there's lots of miracles around his birth. So he, he came out of her side, and first it says he was caught by the deities. The deities caught him and, and set him down, and he stood up, and, <laughs> and he took seven steps to the north, and each step where his foot came down, so he was doing walking meditation. <laughs> he took a step, and a lotus flower appeared under his foot. And he took another step, and another lotus flower appeared. And so seven steps, seven lotus flowers appeared. And the seventh step, he stopped, and he turned to each of the four directions, and he pointed to the heaven, and he pointed to earth, and he said, this is my last birth. 
<laughs> I was in India a number of years ago, spending some time with, with, a, with a teacher, with a, a Hindu teacher, an Advaita teacher. And one day he, um, he brought out a newspaper and it was, it was from Europe and it was kind of one of these tabloids from Europe. And, and the headline story in it was a story about um, a baby being born in a hospital. I, th I think it was in England. Can't remember for sure, but baby was born, and, and the baby, the doctors, and the doctors and the nurses were all there, and the baby came out, and the first words the baby said were, "Not again." <laughs> <laughs> and the doctors and the nurses all swore they heard this baby say, <laughs> "So the Buddha said." <coughs> no more. <laughs> this is my last birth. <laughs> so then they went back to, to Kapilavastu, to the capital city where the palace was and where the, where the king lived, where his, where his father, his parents lived. And, his, and, and then the, the, the next interesting bit of story, the miraculous story, is that uh, this man named Asita, who was considered to be a very wise man and was very well known throughout the whole area, saw a star in the sky. And he followed the star. And the star brought him to the Buddha, to uh, Gautama Siddhartha. Is, this, is there some familiarity in this, in this story? Yes? <laughs> so, so, so Asita arrived. And, and, he, and he talked his way in, he talked his way through all the guards and, and he said, I have to see, I have to see this baby, I have to see this baby. And, his, and the Buddha's father heard that Asita was there and said, yes, bring him in, bring him in. And Asita came in and he looked at, he looked at the Buddha and, and he broke out crying. And the Buddha's father knew that Asita was a very wise man, and he said, what's wrong, what's wrong? Is there something wrong with my baby? Is there, is, what, what's wrong, why are you crying? And Asita said, no, no, there's nothing wrong with him at all. I'm crying because he's going to grow up to be a great teacher, and I will die before he begins teaching. I won't get to hear him teaching. And the Buddha's father, of course, wasn't too pleased with this. He, he wanted an heir to the throne. <laughs> he wanted a, a son to take over. And so the, Buddha, the Buddha's father decided that he had to keep the Buddha happy. If he could keep the Buddha happy so that the Buddha never experienced any kind of sadness or dissatisfaction or any kind of suffering or any kind of, of dukkha, then there would be no incentive to go off to, um, to become a, a, a spiritual seeker and a spiritual teacher. And so the, so the, the, the discourses, the, the discourses re, in the discourses the Buddha relates how he grew up in this, in this family with tremendous wealth and tremendous power and authority and um, he had, you know, he grew up knowing he had job security. <laughs> he grew up, uh, he grew up having the finest of everything. Anything he wanted, it was instantly there. Everything was done to keep him happy. He had the best teachers. He had um, the best musicians, the best artists. He had three palaces, one for each season, and each palace was designed to suit the different seasons. And, um, and he had lots of servants and maids and lots of people taking care of him. And everything was set up for him to be really happy. And, and, and so this is how he grew up, finest clothing, finest food, just everything. And then, um, and then his, his father married him off to a cousin who happened to be the most beautiful woman in the, in the whole kingdom, in the whole area, the most desirable. Every young man wanted to marry her. And uh, 
and the Buddha's father arranged for the Buddha to marry him, so he had this wonderful marriage. And, and all, this, all this time, all this time, although everything was so pleasant, uh, it, it, it said that he had, when he was small, he had all his toys. And they had extra sets of all his toys hidden away. So if one of his toys got broken, instantly there was a replacement there. They went to that, his father went to that extreme to keep him happy. So he, he got married, and, and, but all, all through this lifetime, all through this growing up and getting married and the family life and learning all about being, what it meant to, to rule the kingdom and all the studying he had to do for that, um, all, all this time, there was, there was something in him. There was, there was some questioning in him. There was some wondering. And I, w I would imagine, certainly I think if it were me, there would be some wondering, what's going on outside in the palace? What's going on out there? And, um, and it, it, it's, it's said that he was, um, he was, he was protected from, from seeing old age, sickness, and death. And, and, and I can't help but think he must have wondered about his father. His mother, by the way, his mother died a week after he was born. And, um, and he was raised, he was actually raised by an aunt, his father's sister. And, and, and I think, so, so some of these miraculous parts, the, the birth, the, his mother dying, and growing up in this way, I think, I think a lot of this shows actually humanness. Um, even even living in living in, in the palaces, having having three palaces. You know, I I'd I'd, I'd I'd guess I don't know where all of you live, but I would guess that compared even compared probably to what the Buddha had as a palace at that time, probably most of our homes would be considered palaces. We're growing up in palaces. And we grow up very much in, the, in a culture where we're protected from seeing aging, sickness, death. You know, as, as, as young children, we don't go to funerals. Um, we're not able, we, we aren't even told about them. Not, it's not talked about. Um, our, our, our old people, we tend to, to put away in homes. And, uh, you know, and often, often the young children are never taken to see their grandparents in these homes. And, and so we're, we're protected in, in, in many ways, the same as the Buddha was. And, and I, think, I think part of it is, is a similarity amongst parents. Parents want the best for their children. They want their children to be happy. And the Buddha's father maybe took it to an extreme. But I think it's, I think it's a, say, a, a similar tendency to what many or most or perhaps all of us grew up, grew up in. So, so even with all these, these miracles, these miraculous things, there, there is a, a humanness to me that comes through, at least to me. <coughs> so as he was growing up, there was this, this inner questioning, this inner something something going on and then um, his first child was born and when his first child was born he had a look around at his life he had a look at a look around at where his life was and again like happens in in so many families now he left he experienced such strong dissatisfaction with his place, with his life, that he couldn't see any alternative except to leave. And and so and so he left. And um, and in the West, we, there's a, there's, a, there's a tendency to take issue with this, <laughs> even though it's happening so commonly in our culture now. And. And it's, um, you know, and in many cases in, in our culture, it's, it's accepted. But there is this tendency to take issue. And I, I think it's important to put it in a, a cultural context. 
and the context being that that the tradition was and and still is in India that when a person reaches a certain age by a certain age they've established their family they've um, they've saved up enough money to support their wife the children have grown up to the point where they can work and continue supporting the family and so there's there's a security for the family and that allows the parent to go off on spiritual quest often often in india the family will build a room on the roof of the house and the father will move up into that room and and they'll go for long periods of time without without seeing the father he's he's doing his spiritual practice and the family will continue to take care by taking meals up but he's he's off on his on his spiritual quest, knowing that the family is taken care of. And so the Buddha, given his situation, was able to do that at a younger age, at a younger stage, at an earlier stage in his life. And so he went, he went off, and be, before, he, before he went off, actually this is an important part of the story that I kind of skipped over, before he went off, this, this questioning, this wondering, really was what's going on outside the palace? How do people out there live? And he had his, his attendant take him out on some occasions just so that he could see. And he had to kind of sneak out so without his father knowing. And his, so his, his attendant took him out and, and on these, these expeditions he saw an old person, he saw a sick person, and he saw a dead body. And, and each time he saw them, he didn't know what it was. He saw the sick person and he said to his attendant, what's that, what is this? You know, the person was all moaning and groaning and all kind of shriveled up and rolling around on the ground <laughs> in pain. What is this? And his attendant said, this is, this is sickness. Everybody gets sick at some point in their life. And the Buddha said, you mean I'll get sick too? And his attendant said, yes. And the Buddha said, I don't like that. <laughs> and then they saw an old person, you know, all hunched over, walking with a cane. You see these, these pictures of the Buddha's life story, and they always have these, these drawings in them. And, and he said, what's that? And he said, that's, as the attendant said, that's an old person. And the Buddha said, will I get old? And the attendant said, yes, one day you'll be old and you'll be like that too. And <clears throat> the Buddha didn't like that either. And then he saw a dead body. What is that? And his attendant explained to him about death. And the Buddha said, will I die? And his attendant said, yes, everyone dies. You too, one day will die. And the vultures will come, and the crows will come, and the dogs will come, and um, yes, you'll die. And, and, uh, and all of this stirred up in the Buddha the awareness of, of dukkha, the awareness of suffering. It stirred up in him not wanting that. I don't want that. And then, on one of these expeditions, he saw a <coughs> sadhu. A sadhu is one of these people who have left their family, who have left the home life, the family life, and gone off on spiritual quest. And he saw a sadhu, and he said to his attendant, what's that? And his attendant explained to him about sadhus. He said, he's, he's a holy man. He's, He's on a spiritual quest. He's seeking liberation. He's seeking enlightenment. And the Buddha thought, ah, okay. And so, so the Buddha, these, these, four, these four things, aging, sickness, death, and the sadhu, are referred to as the four heavenly messengers. So the Buddha saw them ultimately not as horrible things, but they became messengers. He took them as messengers. And the message was, I have to find a way of being in this world, living in this life without suffering from this. 
to know that aging, sickness, and death are facts of life. And how to, how to, how to live with this in a way that none of it is a problem. And so when he left, when he left the palace, left the family, his leaving was with this intention. The intention to find a way of being in this life, free from the suffering of aging, sickness, and death. <coughs> and so he set off, and as was the, as was the custom, he, um, he shaved off his hair, and he took off his fine clothes. He left the palace in his fine silk clothes, and, um, and he gave, them, gave his clothes to his attendant, and he told his attendant, take my clothes back, tell my family that I'm okay, but I have to do this. And when I, when I, when I awaken, when I, when I find my answers, I will come back. And so attendant left, and the Buddha began. The Buddha began wandering, and he began. He wandered around, and he found a teacher, and he he spent some time studying with this teacher. And and his first teacher, what he taught was um, concentration practices. He taught concentration practices that led to a state of concentration where, in, in which in which there was, there was no sense of self. And for this teacher, this was believed to be the liberation. And so the Buddha practiced and studied and practiced and practiced, and he, he accomplished these concentration states. And he went to his teacher, and he described his experience, and he, he said what he, what he had experienced. And his teacher said, you've got it, you've got it. Sit down beside me and teach. And the Buddha said, but, but wait a minute. So I go into these concentration states, and, and there's this great bliss and joy and sense of self just isn't there, and it's, it's really a wonderful state. But as soon as I come out of the concentration, I still feel this same, this same inner angst, the same inner restlessness, the same, this, I still experience dukkha. And so he left his teacher, and he wandered, and he found a second teacher. And the second teacher taught even deeper states of concentration. And the Buddha achieved these, these deeper states of concentration. And, um, and he went to the teacher, and he told him, and, and and the teacher said, that's it, that's it. Take over. I'm ready to retire. You take over. <laughs> and, and the Buddha again said, but, but I go into these states, I get into this con these concentration states, and everything is wonderful, it's blissful, it's just so expansive, everything. There's, it's limitless, there's no time, it's just wonderful, but then it ends. And I'm still left with the same, the same wanting things to be different than they are, not liking and liking. And so he left his second teacher. And then he, um, he, he met up with, with some, other, some others who probably had left their teachers as well for similar reasons, five others, and they began, they began practicing together. And they began practicing <coughs> these extreme ascetic practices. And the intention with the extreme ascetic, pra ascetic practices, which are still very much practiced in India and in Nepal, um, the, the intention with them is to, is to wear down the sense of self, just to wear it out by, by denying, negating, putting down, suppressing the body-mind. And so these, these practices include things like going long periods of time on extreme fasts. Uh, includes things like um, sleeping on piles of thorn bushes or sleeping on beds of nails. It includes things like um, 
um, acting like an animal and go for, you know, go for maybe a year walking on all fours and, and living as though you were a cow or a pig <laughs> and eating only what the animal would eat and uh, just living in that way. And, uh, <laughs> and and he he talks about going long periods of time when when he did whatever he could to avoid seeing someone or being seen by someone. <laughs> so spending long periods of time out in the out in the jungle, just eating whatever he could forage, and if he heard anyone or anything coming, he would run. And. Uh, uh, these are, these are some of the milder ascetic practices that, that, he, that he talks about. And, and, and what he found after, after a number of years of doing this, and, and, and his friends, there were, so there were six of them doing these practices together. And the conclusion that he came to after years of, of doing these practices was that he, he wasn't, um, what, what, what he says was, I did these practices and I didn't get any great insights. <laughs> there was no wisdom showing. There was no understanding showing. And, um, and, and so he, he thought, there has to be another way. And, and so he, he began his life with all the luxury and the wealth and all the, all the sensual delights and the sensual pleasures and he rejected that. And then he went right to the opposite, to the opposite of almost denying life, almost rejecting life, bringing himself. It's, it's said that he, he fasted to the extremes that he, he says in the, in the discourses, when he touched his belly, he could feel his spine. And when he touched his spine, he could feel his belly. It was so thin from fasting and you see statues of him in India with all the ribs showing in his face all puckered in. And, and uh, just, just a, literally a skeleton with, with flesh over it. And, um, and so he, he saw that this was just getting him sick and weak and tired and, um, and he wasn't getting any insight from it. He wasn't getting any wisdom from it. And so he rejected. So he rejected the two extremes. And, 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 and I, think, I think that that has parallels in our, in our own lives. You know, we grow up with our families in a certain way and we rebel. And, and so often a person will go from one extreme to another. And we see it, um, we see it in, in many ways, probably you've seen it in some way in your own life. Perhaps you've had a job and you really, really worked hard at that job and really felt you were getting a lot from it. And at some point, it's just, oh, this isn't where it's at. And you do something completely opposite, like no job. <laughs> or, or something totally different. Just going from one extreme to another. And, and so this, this, this seeing the futility of the two extremes was, was one of the keys in the Buddha's search. And, and it's one of the keys in, in, in the meditation practice too, is, is seeing where we're tending to extremes, where we're tending to extremes. So it, it could be an extreme of making too much effort, just so much effort. I've got to just stay with the breath, stay with the breath. Just, uh, just breathe, just breathe. Uh, got to stop the mind. Uh, and, and, you know, and just really, really pushing and striving for that. And at some point, feeling the weariness of it. And then, uh, no, it's not about striving. It's about not doing. Oh, okay, I have to just be. Oh, I'll just be. Oh, uh, huh. <laughs> nice to just be. <laughs> you go from one extreme to the other. <laughs> so the Buddha, 
the Buddha then decided, I have to get some strength. I have to get some strength. I have to get some clarity of mind. I have, I have to be able to make some effort. There must be some, some way of making some effort, but not going to extremes. And so he, so he, he began eating. And at that point, the other five thought he's lost it. <laughs> he's, he's, he's giving up. He's, you know, he's going back to the life of luxury by eating a bowl of rice milk. <laughs> and they left. And so he was left. He was left on his own. And he ate and got his strength back. And then he, he had, um, he had a, a memory. A memory came to him, and he recalled an incident of sitting under a tree watching his father do a ceremony at the start of the planting season. So this was the tradition. At the start of the planting season, the, the, the king, his father, would come out and, and plow the first, the first row. And the Buddha recalled sitting under a tree and watching this. And he recalled that just in sitting under this tree and watching this, a real quietness came on him not because he did anything. It just, it just arose out of the conditions, a real quietness and a settling. And, and, he, and he, he dropped into or dropped into him a state of, of real peace, contentment, and happiness. And he recalled this, and he thought, maybe there's something in that. Maybe there's something in that. And so he went and he sat under a tree, sat under a Bodhi tree, and he began just breathing and paying attention to his breathing. And paying attention to his breathing without striving, struggling, not in order to get anything from it, but just to be present. And in that being present, this, this peace, this happiness, this this joy that, again, dropped in. And he just rested in that. And in the course of resting in that, through one whole night, arose his awakening. The understanding was revealed to him. And, and then he spent, he spent the next seven weeks in the area around the tree doing practice and reviewing his life and reviewing his practice and, and, and thinking about, well, maybe I could teach this. And then he thought, nobody's going to understand this. Nobody's going to get this. And doubt, doubt arose. Doubt arose. And I think, I think this, this also, just the fact that doubt arose in him, I think, to me, also points out his humanness. And I think it also points out a, a similarity to what happens with us so often, where whether it's while we're sitting or while we're walking or while we're at home washing the dishes or sitting under a tree, we, we have some insight. Something, something comes through that's really clear and really rings true, and it's, and it's re revealing, and, it, and, it can, and in the moment it can feel like it's life-changing. And then we go back to our regular life, and did that happen? What was that about? You know, and sometimes just even on a retreat, we'll be doing the practice, and there's some, some very profound insight. Some very profound insight. And, and then in the next sitting, all the pain comes back, and it's, oh, it's just all pain. <laughs> and, and the insight is forgotten. And then maybe there'll be some memory of it. Well, no, 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 it's just pain. I mean, how many have had a similar an experience like this? You know, the, the doubt shows, the forgetting shows. And, and this is what happened to the Buddha. He's no different than us. <laughs> but fortunately, fortunately, the Buddha explored this. And, and the story is that, um, is that Brahma Sahampati, who is one of the great gods from the, the Brahmanism tradition at the time, descended from the heaven 
and said to him this line that Molly said last night, there are those with little dust in their eyes. Please teach for the benefit of those. And then, and then, the, Buddha, and then the Buddha said, out of compassion, I will, I will teach. And so he went off to find his five friends and, um, and at first they were saying no, 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 no. And, and finally he convinced them to listen to him and they became his first students and they got enlightened and the story goes on from there. So that's, that's, the, uh, that's, that's the, the basic story. Not as brief as I had intended it to be. <laughs> But, but I, I hope that we can see some parallels in that with our own lives, and I hope we can also see some of the, the specialness in it. And to see both of these in a way that it does bring some inspiration. It sets an example for us. It shows us what's possible. And it's in that, in that example, and in, that, in the example that the Buddha set, and in the in the, in the possibility, in knowing the possibility of awakening, as demonstrated by the Buddha. And, and, also, and also honoring the Buddha and taking refuge in the Buddha because through his own awakening, he worked out the practices. And he, he worked out the teachings in a way that they can be communicated and they can be understood and the practices and the path that leads to the understanding. And so we take refuge in the Buddha for all of that. I just um, don't want to go on too much longer, but just, just a, a, few of, <coughs> a few little stories that, that, that also show his, his humanness. So even after his enlightenment, so there's this doubt coming up, there's the doubt. And then there's this, um, this character named Mara who keeps coming to visit the Buddha. And Mara's goal, Mara is kind of the Buddhist equivalent of the devil. And Mara's goal for initially is to keep the Buddha from getting enlightened. And after he's enlightened, it's to get him to not teach. And after he starts teaching, it's to get him to stop teaching. And then it's to get him to die. <laughs> And, and Mara, Mara keeps coming to visit the Buddha. And the Buddha, throughout his whole lifetime, talks about Mara coming, and to, to Mara coming to visit him, and to try to convince him of something. And, and we could take Mara literally as a person coming to, you know, to as, a, as an enemy of the Buddha, but we can also take it metaphorically as all the struggles that come to us. And so here's the Buddha, he, you know, he's enlightened. <laughs> he's, he's awake, he's free. He's, he's the great teacher, the great master. You know, hundreds of thousands of people flocking to him to get enlightened. And, and here he is, he's got these struggles that keep coming. Mara keeps visiting him, and he has to keep, he has to keep dealing with Mara. And, and so it's, it, it parallels our own lives, you know? It doesn't matter how awake we are or how good we feel, Mara comes, Mara comes. And, and what's important is, so, so the, the, the Buddha is showing his humanness in, in Mara coming and in facing Mara, but what's equally important is how Buddha meets Mara. And whenever Mara comes, the Buddha is able to say, ah, oh, Mara, here you are again. Sit down and let's have a chat. So he greets these struggles with friendliness, with metta. And he, he, he meets the struggles, not, not pushing them away, not trying to get rid of, not trying to fix but to be open. And I think that's such an important lesson for us in our struggles in, in meditation and our struggles in life. So there's, there's Mara. There's um, another, another story um, <laughs> that shows his 
humanness. There was a group of the monks who were living in a, in a, in a monastery, some faraway place, and they were, you know, they got in a dispute. There were two factions amongst this group of monks, and they were fighting and arguing with each other. And some of the other monks came and told the Buddha and convinced him that he had to go and sort things out. So the Buddha said, okay. <laughs> he didn't want to go. He was, he's clear that he didn't want to go, which also I think shows his humanness. <laughs> and so he went and he taught these monks and he talked with them and he discussed it with them and, and tried to get them to, to live in harmony and talked about why they should be living in harmony. And they just kept fighting. And finally he said, okay, fine. And he walked away. He just, he just walked away. And I think that also shows his humanness. He, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't a great God that was able to come in there and make everybody peaceful and, and happy. And, and um, a story related to that, when one person comes to the Buddha and says, oh, great master, great teacher, oh, you know so much, you're so wise, and you've accomplished so much. Please enlighten me. And, 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 the, and the Buddha says, it's not in me to enlighten anyone. I can't enlighten you. He says, I can point the way, but you have to do the work. You enlighten yourself. And so again, that, that humanness, you know, I'm not a god. I'm not a, I don't have that power. I can give you the teachings but you have to do the work. And, and, I, and I think that's an important message for all of us. We all have to do the work, and we all wake ourselves up. It's up, to our, it's up to us. It's up to each one of us to wake ourselves up. And this, the, the Buddha, the word the Buddha, as Molly mentioned last night, means the awakened one. And a related word to it is bodhi, which means awakening, awakening. And we, 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 we talk about and we, we hear about Buddha nature. And, and Buddha nature refers to the potential for each one of us to awaken, the potential for each one of us to be free. That potential is in with each within each one of us. And as the Buddha said, it's up to you. It's up to you. If you want to be awake, if you want to be free, you can do it. It's in your nature. Freedom is in your nature. And I think that's another, another useful way of viewing refuge in the Buddha, not in the person, not in a wooden statue sitting here, but in that potential for awakening, that possibility that's, in, that's within each one of us, that is our nature. But I pointed out over and over again that, that, that liberation, that freedom, that the ending of dukkha is our nature. And it gets covered over by all these layers of wanting and not wanting and preferring and, and craving and clinging and pushing away and, and um, all, the, all the different strategies that we use to try to, to try to get rid of our dukkha. And the Buddha points out that's not the way. That's not the way. Sit under the tree. <laughs> Sit at peace. Allow, allow it. Allow that nature to shine through. And we hear, we hear it said that, oh, it takes many lifetimes, many, many lifetimes. But you know, maybe, maybe we've already put in many lifetimes. <laughs> maybe we're here because we've already put in our many lifetimes. And maybe this is our last. <laughs> <laughs> the possibility is here. 
And the Buddha says over and over and over again, liberation is here and now. Here and now. In this very lifetime, in this very moment. It's not a matter of time. It's more a matter of timeless. It is timeless. So understanding refuge in, in, in taking refuge in, in the Buddha for his inspiration, for his example, for his role model, for, for, for doing the work to be able to provide us with a path, with the teachings. Taking refuge, taking refuge in knowing the possibility of awakening. And we all know it. We do know it. We've all had moments of awakening. But then the doubt comes. <laughs> and it's, it's trusting in that knowing, taking refuge in that knowing from our own experience. Taking refuge in that, that, that Buddha nature, that seed of awakening that's within us. And taking refuge in the here and now, taking refuge in this very moment, not getting caught up in past or future, but also not clinging to this moment. You know, beautiful, one of, one of my favorite sayings of the Buddha, I've got many, very, many favorite sayings of the Buddha, one, he, say, he, says, um, he says, dry up the remains of the past. Let go of the past. It's done. It's finished. Hold on to nothing for the future. Don't cling to the future. Don't, don't cling to expectations. Don't cling to how you want things to turn out or how you think they will turn out. Hold nothing for the future. And then he says, when you do not cling to the present, then you can go from place to place in peace. So in this very moment, can we release the past, hold nothing for the future, and not cling to the present, and be at peace? So let's sit quietly for a couple of minutes.